This is a true story. Uh, last year, Kelly and I were in Costa Rica and we went cliff diving. And I dove in a few times, it was about 30 feet up, and I looked down at my wrist and my watch wasn't on my wrist. And I knew instantly that it had fallen off when I was cliff diving. There was this little pool there. And um, there was another family that was cliff diving also. They had a few kids and I asked if I could borrow their goggles. So I, I put them on and it was about 15 feet deep in this pool. And I dove under and started to swim down and clear as day, my watch was just right there sticking out of the dirt. And I grabbed it and swam back up to the surface with it in my hand and I held it up and everybody else who was in that pool cheered because they knew that I had lost my watch. Well. I went over to the shore and started to put my watch on and it was too small. It wasn't my watch. So I went back and asked the kid if I could borrow his goggles again and everybody's just thinking there's no way he's going to find it. That was a once in a lifetime thing. Well, I dove under again, swam down and I kid you not, clear as day, another Apple watch is sitting right there and I grab it, pull it out and come and put it on my wrist and sure enough, this one was my watch and everybody there was just cheering and it was this crazy moment. And I thought of that this year as I was getting ready for Easter and celebrating the resurrection. You see, Jesus dives into the ground through his death on the cross, and he comes out holding two things, <laughs> his life and yours. And I think in our current cultural moment, resurrection is a word that we need as much as we've ever needed. We need a word of hope. We, we need a word of life. We need a word that God is not done working, that even in the mess and even in the pain and even in the dirt of our lives, God is still at work and he's working to bring about redemption. He's working to bring about hope. He dives into the grave and he comes out with new life in his hands. See, today we're going to look at the resurrection story as told by uh, the evangelist John. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 20. If you know anything about the Gospel of John, uh, you'll know that John is a poet. I mean, he begins his Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he's echoing back to Genesis chapter 1. But in John chapter 20, where he begins to tell his resurrection account, listen to how he starts there. Verse 1 of chapter 20. He says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. On the first day of the week. And John wants us to start thinking, Oh, this is, a, this is a creation story on the first day. He's starting to echo back to, to Genesis. And what John is going to start to say, and you will see this together today, is it's not just the first day of a new week. It's actually the first day of an entirely new world. And listen to the way he tells this account. They'd been taken away from the tomb, verse 2. So she, Mary, ran and went to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the disciple, 
And they were going towards the tomb and both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Just a quick time out. John just told you that he's faster than Peter. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? I mean, all of these details that we have that if this were just a a made-up myth, no one would put in. Verse 5. And he stooped to look in, and he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he didn't go in. And Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, because he got there after him, because he's slower. (laughs) And he saw the linen clothes lying there, and the face face cloth which had been over Jesus' head, not lying with the linens, but folded up and placed by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, just wanted to tell you that one more time, also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture. He must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. See, see, John's telling you, he wants to invite you into this story. But what we're going to find out is that Mary doesn't leave with them. Mary actually stays, and she actually, because she stays, she sees Jesus. And listen to what she says in verse 15. She starts to have this conversation with Jesus. She doesn't know it's him yet, and she says this. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, If you carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Just just give me his body. She thought he was the gardener. Now, why in the world would she think that? That doesn't come out of nowhere. That's actually deeply entrenched in this story. If you go back and you read in um, chapter 19, verse 41, it says this. Now, in the place where he, Jesus, was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden tomb, or in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. It was a few years ago when I caught this detail that John slides in there. That this was a tomb, Jesus' tomb was actually in a, a garden. Now... If you're a Jewish reader of the scriptures, your mind would immediately go to a specific garden that is part of the story that God is telling. Now, any guesses? Right, the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden. That John is telling us a new creation story. I mean, think of the poetic nature of this, that everything begins in a garden and everything goes wrong in a garden. And that Jesus, see, see, the original garden was intended to be a place of life, but it became a place of death. It was intended to be a garden, but it became a grave. But Jesus is laid in a garden, dead, and he begins to come out of the ground with new life in his hand. This graveyard was turned into a garden. See, I don't think Mary's wrong. <laughs> Jesus is a gardener. He's just not the gardener that Mary thought he was. He's not the gardener that many of us think he is, but he is a gardener. He's cultivating new life in the soil of death and pain and hurt and failure. He's gardening in the soil of our life and bringing about new hope. See, I'd invite you to write this down today as we celebrate resurrection together. It's in the deepest darkness 
that is the place of God's most profound grace. In fact, write it down like this. The deepest dark is the place where God shines the brightest. Where God shines the brightest. See, resurrection is the declaration that God is putting the world back together. I love the way that Friedrich Buchner wrote it. He said this, he said, resurrection means that the worst thing is never the last thing. God will have the final word. And sure, the world is not as it should be, but it's also not as it always will be. See, resurrection promises us and tells us that this world matters to God. Resurrection declares that God loves this world, that matter matters to God. Jesus rises with a physical body, different than the one he had before, but physical nonetheless. Matter matters to God. Resurrection tells us that the story that we're in is not about escaping this world, but about redeeming this world and renewing this world and bringing a garden out of the grave. But see, here's the problem. Here's the problem. Gardens grow in soil that's filled with nutrients. And you know what those nutrients are? Compost, manure, junk, the stuff that we'd rather not talk about and the stuff that we'd rather push to the periphery. That's where God's grace shines the brightest. And as we're gonna see in Jesus's encounter with Mary, that's where he starts to bring about new creation in her life and where he does in our life as well. So we're going to see how the deepest darkness is transformed into the greatest, brightest light in Mary's life as she encounters the risen Jesus. Um, it starts in verse 11 of John chapter 20. It said this, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped and she looked into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. And one of them at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. And having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Stop there. See, because Mary's greatest hope in this moment is that she finds a dead body. <laughs> I mean, she wanted to do the right thing, uh, the thing that Jewish women would do. They would prepare a body for burial. And she wanted to do that for her friend and for her rabbi, Jesus. Her greatest hope is that she finds a dead body. I think sometimes our greatest hope is that we just make it through the day, right? Especially in moments like we're in right now, that if we just make it through, we're, we're sort of happy. Like, we'll take that. But Jesus is undoing all of that. He's, he's gardening in this graveyard of Mary's life. And he's bringing about new creation in the midst of her brokenness. See, here's the transformation that he's taking Mary on. It's one from just the greatest hope is I could find this dead body or death to destiny. And see, Jesus is reawakening hope in Mary's life. See, there's something in us that longs to believe that resurrection is true, isn't there? 
I mean, we love resurrection stories. Even now, the narrative in our nation is, after COVID-19 lockdown is over, we're going to come back better than ever. We love the comeback story. We love that Tiger Woods, at the age of 43, wins the Masters, comes out of nowhere, and does it. Yes, right? We want to believe that our failures aren't final. We want to believe that our past doesn't have to define us. We want to believe that there's grace and that there's good news. And even if we don't believe that resurrection is a reality, we wish that we did. There's something in us that longs for that to be true. See, the first church, they had this term that they used when they talked about Jesus' resurrection. They used this word, first fruits. And listen to the way that Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said this, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And that was their way of talking about death because it was this wink to, hey, um, it's, it's not the end. It looks like the end, but it's not. For as man came as um, by a man came death, by a man has also come resurrection from the dead. For in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Now, first fruits was a celebration, it was a feast that the Jewish people had. Um, they would take a, 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 a sheave of wheat, and the first one that they saw come out, they would take on a certain day, you can read about it in Leviticus chapter 23, they would take it and they, they would wave it to God as if to say, we know that more of this is coming. And it was the day after the Sabbath, after Passover. First fruits, the celebration of first fruits is the day that Jesus walks out of the grave. It's as if Jesus is saying, there's more of this to come. It's coming for you also. I love the way that N.T. Wright talks about resurrection. Here's what he says. Resurrection isn't a fancy way of saying going to heaven when you die. When we celebrate resurrection, we are not talking about going to heaven when we die. It's not about life after death as such. Rather, it's a way of talking about being bodily alive again after a period of being bodily dead. Resurrection is a second stage post-mortem life. It's life after life after death. And the early followers of Jesus were convinced that because Jesus was raised, that they would be too one day. In fact, in fact, early followers of Jesus said, I want to be buried facing east towards Jerusalem. And I want you to write on my gravestone. Most early followers of Jesus had one thing on their gravestone and said, resurgem. It means I shall rise. And see, if you're taking notes, I'd invite you to write this down also, that death certainly is a reality but it is not a finality. As Paul writes, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? And so I don't know what's going on in your life today. And I don't know what, what feels like a graveyard in your life today. I just know that Jesus is at work in the graves, bringing them into gardens. 
and he doesn't do it by saying, hey, work really hard and try really hard. What he, how he does it is by saying, climb on my back. I'm going into the grave and I will bring you out with new life in my hands. It's like the mom or dad that says to their kid, climb on my back when you're tired and I will carry you home. That's what Jesus is doing. And that's why resurrection reawakens our hope. So Mary's best hope was that she would find a dead body, but but Jesus is reawakening hope and he's calling her to new life. But notice Mary's posture. It, It talks about it in verse 11. It says, and she was weeping outside the tomb and she stood weeping. And then again in verse 13, she was weeping. And then in verse 15, Jesus says, woman, why are you weeping? And the word that they're using here is a word that means like almost violently heaving, like your whole body is involved, that she is invested and she is hurting. And it's in this moment that she meets Jesus. But I want you to notice something. The, the two men, uh, Peter and John, who raced literally to the tomb, also raced away from the tomb. They went home. And Mary stayed. Mary stayed and sat in her pain. Mary stayed and and wept. Mary didn't hit the eject button and go home immediately. She, She sat in the moment. And it's in that sitting in the moment, the waiting in the pain, that she actually encounters Jesus. And I think there's a message for us in this, friends, that oftentimes we want to fast forward through the painful parts of life. We want to just get them over with and get on with whatever God would have for us next. But it's in the waiting that Mary has her encounter with the living Christ. And it's in waiting that she becomes the first person to meet the risen Jesus. And I wonder if we just fast forward through the pain so quickly sometimes that we actually miss the encounter that Jesus would want us to have. You see, in verse 18, it talks about what Jesus does with Mary's weeping. Verse 18, um, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and he has said these things to her. See, Mary's weeping is turned into her witness because her sorrow is redeemed. You may want to write that down. Weeping is turned into witness because sorrow is redeemed. And it's fascinating that Mary is the very first person to share the commission by Jesus to share the good news that he has risen. It's interesting because, A, if um, the gospel writers were just making this up, they never would have chosen Mary to be the first witness to the gospel. Never. Um, Women weren't even able to give testimony in a court of law. Their word didn't count and it didn't matter back then. In fact, Celsus, a second century Greek philosopher, wrote this. He said, Christianity can't be true. Because the written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women 
And we all know that women are hysterical. His words, not mine. Don't send me an email. Send Celsus, um, second century Greek philosopher. But Jesus is saying to Mary, Mary, you're free to go and serve me. Mary, you're free to live into who I've designed you and called you to be. That word redeemed literally means to be bought back, to be taken out of this place that you were in and launched into a new life. Her weeping is turned into her witness and her sorrow is redeemed. I love the way that J.R.R. Tolkien talks about it. He calls it a catastrophe. It's the opposite of a catastrophe where good comes out of a situation that you never would have expected it, where triumph rises out of despair. I mean, think about this for a moment. Jesus turns Mary's mess into her message. He turns her sorrow into joy. He takes the tears that she is shedding and he uses those to water the soil that new creation is going to start to come out of. This grave in Mary's life is going to become a garden because he is the gardener. And it's in those dirty moments, those weeping moments, those painful moments of life that God does some of his best work. I mean, the Apostle Paul writes about it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says this, But he, Jesus, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul writes, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. So what if for you, What if your greatest message is found in your deepest mess? What if your greatest hope is birthed out of your deepest hurt? And what if your greatest contribution to the kingdom is found in the soil of your deepest pain? I mean, we all want to fast forward through dead ends and failures and rejections and abandonments and unanswered prayers and wrong turns. But what if those things could actually be the very soil that our story is grounded in? Because this is a God who turns weeping into witness. Don't be afraid to share your story. Don't be afraid to share your scars. Don't be afraid to share your pain because it's the very place that Jesus might speak through you the loudest. I'd love to share with you a few stories from our community about the way that Jesus has done that in real lives today. Take a listen to some of these stories. Hello. My name is Jesse Martinez. I've been a member of Emmanuel Faith for six years, and this is my testimony of salvation. God saved me from myself and my destructive behavior towards others. You see, God captured my attention one day when I reached the lowest point of my life with no one to help me get up except for his son, Jesus. I had lost it all, my marriage, my children, my job, my life. I fell to my knees and I asked him to forgive me for everything I had done. And I felt an emptiness inside that nothing could fill. That emptiness disappeared the day that Jesus came into my life. He filled that hole in my heart that nothing in this world could. And only he showed me how to truly love others, including myself. You see, before I surrendered to Jesus, 
I thought I knew what love was and how to love, but I wasn't even close. And because I chose to love Jesus, he loved me back. He restored what was lost and what was broken. He gave me a beautiful wife that strengthens my love for Christ every day. He gave me hope and he saved my daughter Juliet from cancer because of the prayers of members of this church that lifted her up in the name of Jesus. I now feel an overwhelming sense of selfishness not to share the love of God with others. And because of that, I can love my family and my friends with a true heart. And I now know why Jesus died on that cross for me and for you. You see, Jesus changed my life when I thought I had nothing left. And I know he can do the same for you. Thank you for letting me share today Emmanuel Faith. He is risen. So Jesus is the, the great gardener who's tilling the soil of Mary's tears and her hopelessness and he reawakens hope and he redeems her sorrow. And look at what he does next in verse 16. He says this, Jesus said to her, Mary, just one word, one name, but it cuts to the core of, of who she is because Mary's been named a lot of things. I mean, she's been named sort of one of those women in town that you just didn't want to be around. Uh, she's been named by demon possession. You can read about that in Luke chapter 8. She's been named by a lot of things. But Jesus cuts through it all and he calls her Mary. And she responds in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, verse 17, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. See, patriarchy was just entrenched in that culture, but in this moment it's turned into equality because Mary is launched to be the first proclaimer of the gospel. And it's all based out of this foundation, Mary. Mary, you're whole and you're healed. You're not all the names that you've been given. You're the, you are named by me, Jesus is saying. And your identity can now start to come forth. See, I don't know what types of names you've been given in life. I don't know what kind of things you've been called. Uh, maybe, and these things tend to stick in our mind. Um, dumb or ugly or useless or you name it. They stick in our mind, and I'm sure Mary heard every single one of those things, but when she heard Jesus call her name Mary, it changed everything. It reminded me of a story that C.S. Lewis told in the voyage of the Don Treader. It was about a dragon named Eustace, and he was uh, being healed by Aslan the lion. And Aslan comes up to him and he starts to peel the scales off of him. Actually, Eustace tries to take them off on his own. But Aslan says to him, you will have to let me undress you. Eustace says, I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. He says, so I laid flat down on my back and I let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep. I thought it had gone right into my heart. And then he began pulling off the skin. It hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. 
you know, if you've ever picked the scab off a sore place. <laughs> and then I saw what he was doing and I turned into a boy again. It was this picture of the dragon scales being pulled off by Aslan, the Christ figure, and Eustace being redeemed, being um, reawakened to be who he had always been designed to be. And the exact same thing is happening to Mary here. Jesus says, I'm going to my father and yours as if to say, Mary, we are siblings. We're part of the same family, the family of God. Your identity is as a daughter of the most high God, the one who conquered sin and conquered death, the great gardener. Oh, what love the father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that's what's happening to Mary her identity is being restored. She's going from orphan to adopted. Identity restored. See, the defeat of sin isn't just about going to heaven when you die. It's about redeeming and restoring your humanity. For It's about allowing you to finally become who God has designed you to become. See, so if if resurrection is a reality, which I'm firmly convinced that it is, then discipleship is an invitation to learn to live in his way, to become who God has always designed us to become. And here's God's promise for you and I in, in all of that. He says, I'll pull off the scales. I'll make you new. I'm the ascended, risen king. I have all authority in heaven and on earth, and I promise that I will never leave you and never forsake you. See, Mary's identity is restored. She is who she was only, always designed to be because God brings light out of the deepest darkness. He brings hope out of the most profound hurt. And he uses as his mouthpiece some of the most broken people. Mary's an example of that. And she is our example to follow. So we've seen that hope is reawakened, that sorrow is redeemed, and that identity is restored and Mary is sitting at this garden tomb and Jesus is the gardener and he is turning everything that was meant for bad upside down. And friends, I'm convinced that he wants to do the exact same thing in our lives today because resurrection isn't just something that happened. It's something that happens it's something that happens in our lives in the everyday as we follow the way of Jesus. So let me encourage you to write three things down as we begin to sort of land the plane today and close our time together. Number one, I want to invite you to name your fertilizer. What is the brokenness and pain in your life that God might use as the soil to bring about new creation? I mean, he is the gardener. He is turning graves into gardens. He's bringing about new life. Here's a second thing I want to encourage you to do. Plant seeds of hope. Plant seeds of hope. 
I know it can be dangerous to hope. It can be painful to hope because we start to open our hearts up to the what if God, what if you came through in this? What if you changed this? What if you restored this relationship or this brokenness in my life or this addiction or this pain? But I want to encourage you today to plant seeds of hope. And maybe you would even do something physical to represent this. Maybe you go out in, into your garden or in your yard someplace, and maybe you plant some flowers just as a reminder that, God, you do, you bring about new life, you bring about new creation, even in the soil of death and brokenness. And then finally, here's what I want to encourage you to do last. Look for resurrections. Look for reversals. Look for the way that God is at work, and then broadcast that. Tell somebody about it. It'll encourage your soul, and it will encourage theirs. See, we made this statement at the very beginning of our time together, that when Jesus walked out of the grave, he didn't just walk out with new life for him. He walked out with new life for you and for anybody that would say, I'm a follower of his. He's my rabbi, and he's my Lord, just like Mary did. And so I want to encourage you, if you've had to say goodbye to loved ones, that resurrection is a reality. It will happen one day. They will walk out of the grave one day when they hear their name called just like Mary did. So I just want to encourage your soul today to have hope. I'm holding on to that too as I grieve having to say goodbye to people in my life that I've loved dearly. But I also want to call you to faith. It's the exact same thing that Jesus did to Mary in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Listen to what he said. He said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he says, do you believe this? Do you believe this? See, the the first garden back in Genesis chapter 2 was intended to be a place of life and it was a place of death. See, the garden tomb that Jesus was laid in was intended to be a place of death, but it became a place of life, a place where identity was restored and hope was reawakened and sorrow was redeemed. Friends, this is the invitation to believe this God, to trust this God, to know that graves can become gardens, that death can become life, that confinement can become freedom, and that failure can be forgiven. And his invitation is really, really simple. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Because that is the only requirement for life eternal in Jesus. So I'd encourage you, turn your life over to him. If you've already done that, reaffirm your trust. If you never have, you can just simply say back to him, Jesus, I trust that you are my savior, that you died on my behalf and that you were risen so that I could find new life in you. I give you my life today. Would you be the great gardener and would you cultivate new creation in the soil of my brokenness? See, if that's a prayer you pray, trust and know that you have life eternal. The great gardener 
is at work in you. As the great hymn says, Love's redeeming work is done. He fought the fight, the battle won. Death in vain forbids him rise, but Christ has opened paradise. He lives again, our glorious King. Where, O oh, death, is now thy sting? Once he died our souls to save. Where thy victory, O oh, grave? Alleluia. Alleluia, the King is risen, and we have new life in Him. Mary was right. He is the gardener, and He's cultivating new creation all around us. Do you have eyes to see it? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being the great gardener and for bringing light out of darkness hope out of despair, life out of death. Would you remind us that because you have risen, we will one day also. And would you show us the many resurrections and the reversals that happen in our life in the everyday. We pray this in your powerful risen name. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed.